0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of diabetic gastroparesis, found under the gastrointestinal section at medbullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A 56 year old woman presents to the emergency clinic for recurrent nausea and vomiting for the past three weeks. On average, these episodes occur after food intake which the patient reports has significantly decreased in amount, as she now feels full quickly. Her past medical history is significant for poorly controlled diabetes for the past 10 years. A physical exam demonstrates epigastric distension and tenderness with no peritoneal signs. Let's continue with an introduction to diabetic gastroparesis. Clinically, this is defined as a syndrome of delayed gastric emptying in the absence of a mechanical obstruction and the presence of cardinal symptoms, such as nausea, secondary to diabetes mellitus. Other causes of gastroparesis include viral infections, such as cytomegalovirus, medications, such as tricyclic antidepressants. It may be caused post-surgically, or it may be idiopathic. In terms of the demographics, diabetes is the most common systemic disease associated with gastroparesis. Symptoms of gastroparesis are reported in 11-18% to 18% of patients with diabetes. Risk factors include that it typically occurs in patients who have had diabetes mellitus for over 5 years, and another risk factor is chronic hyperglycemia, which is defined as a blood glucose greater than 200. With regards to the pathogenesis, there are abnormalities of antral motor function and coordination and postprandial proximal gastric accommodation and contraction. This is primarily due to autonomic dysfunction and or an abnormal intrinsic nervous system, such as from the interstitial cells of Cajal, which is the pacemaker of the gut. Other proposed contributing factors include hyperglycemia, vagal dysfunction, loss of neural nitric oxide synthase expression, and oxidative stress. Moving on to the presentation, symptoms may include nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, early satiety, postprandial fullness, bloating, and weight loss if it is severe. On exam, one may note epigastric distension or tenderness, a succession splash, or other signs of autonomic dysfunction such as orthostatic hypotension. In terms of further studies, the diagnosis is based on clinical presentation and it is confirmed with a gastric emptying study. Imaging may include upper gastrointestinal endoscopy, This is the initial test performed to exclude mechanical obstruction. Alternative options include computic tomography or magnetic resonance enterography. Another option is scintigraphic gastric emptying. This is the most cost-effective and widely available technique to confirm delayed gastric emptying. It usually evaluates the gastric emptying of solids. In terms of other laboratory studies, an HbA1c may be evaluated for assessment of glycemic control. Other tests such as hemoglobin, TSH, ANA, and albumin are used for evaluation of other etiologies. With regards to the differential, make sure to think about psychiatric disease, with distinguishing factors being that patients may have a history of psychiatric disease such as bulimia, and some patients may have a normal scintigraphic emptying study. Also think about cyclic vomiting syndrome, with distinguishing factors being that this will present with intense vomiting episodes. Separated by symptom free periods. There may also be a history of cannabinoid use. In terms of treatment, first line options include dietary modification for patients with mild disease. Patients should avoid foods that are fatty, acidic, spicy, and roughage based. They should also avoid alcohol and smoking. Another option is optimization of glycemic control. Remember that acute hyperglycemia has been demonstrated to slow gastric emptying. If there are continued symptoms, Pharmacologic therapy with prokinetics and antiemetics can be considered. Metoclopramide is the first-line prokinetic. Second-line prokinetics include domperidone, erythromycin, and cisapride. Antiemetics include diphenhydramine, ondansetron, and prochlorperazine. Second-line options are indicated in patients with refractory symptoms despite first-line therapy. Remember that endoscopic gastrostomy tube decompression and jejunal feeding tubes can be considered. There are also surgical treatments, and tricyclic antidepressants such as low dose nortriptyline may also be considered. And lastly, complications related to diabetic gastroparesis include electrolyte imbalance and malnutrition. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to diabetic gastroparesis, let's walk through a question to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For this question, consider the following clinical scenario A 55 year old man presents to the emergency department with abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting for the past 24 hours. He states that he has had these symptoms for many years, but it seems to be occurring more frequently with more severe symptoms during each episode. He is often constipated and has difficulty with bowel movements. He last had a bowel movement earlier in the morning. His past medical history is significant for diabetes, obesity, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension, For which he has prescribed lisinopril, metformin, and atorvastatin. He is poorly compliant with his medications. The patient states that he last smoked marijuana one month ago. His temperature is 98.9 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.2 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 130 over 85. Pulse is 125 beats per minute. And respirations are 16 breaths per minute. Physical exam reveals an obese man with no focal tenderness guarding, or rigidity. He is acutely vomiting. Laboratory studies demonstrate a sodium of 140, potassium of 4.0, bicarbonate of 27, BUN of 58, creatinine of 1.1, glucose of 255, hemoglobin A1c of 13%, and lipase of 100. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's symptoms? And the answer choices are, choice one, cannabinoid-induced hyperemesis syndrome, choice two, gastroparesis, choice three, intracranial mass, choice four, pancreatitis, or choice five, small bowel obstruction. The best answer to this question is, choice two, gastroparesis. This patient with a history of poorly managed diabetes is presenting with gradually worsening episodes of nausea, vomiting, constipation, and abdominal pain with a non-specific physical exam with minor discomfort to palpation with no focal tenderness. This is most concerning for a diagnosis of gastroparesis. Diabetic gastroparesis occurs when persistent hyperglycemia leads to microvascular ischemia and injury to the enteric nervous system, causing dysfunction. As a result, Regular coordinated peristalsis does not occur and patients may present with nausea, vomiting, early satiety, and bloating with a gradually worsening course if the patient's diabetes is not treated. Acute management involves intravenous fluids for rehydration, antiemetics, and analgesia. A CT can rule out other diagnoses such as a small bowel obstruction. A gastric emptying study is considered the most appropriate confirmatory test. Management is centered on tight glycemic control, small meals, and prokinetics such as erythromycin and metoclopramide. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Cannabinoid-induced hyperemesis syndrome presents with repeat episodes of severe, cyclic vomiting with symptoms that are improved by hot showers. Treatments for nausea during episodes include topical capsaicin, haloperidol, ondansetron, and warm compresses. Though this patient does have a history of marijuana use, it is not cyclical, and the use is not frequent enough to make this the most likely diagnosis. Choice 3. Intracranial masses can cause headaches, nausea, and vomiting that are worse in the morning, secondary to increased blood flow to the brain when lying flat, leading to swelling and edema. Patients would be expected to have gradually insidious symptoms with possible neurological deficits such as ataxia. Choice 4. Pancreatitis presents secondary to gallstones or alcohol use with epigastric pain that radiates to the back, nausea, vomiting, and elevated lipase. This patient's lipase is slightly elevated, but this is likely secondary to profuse vomiting. Similarly, his pain is diffuse and not focal to the epigastric region. Choice 5. Small bowel obstruction presents with nausea, vomiting, abdominal distension, a tympanitic abdomen, and a failure to pass flatus or stool. It is caused by adhesions usually secondary to abdominal surgery. The diagnosis is made with a CT scan. Observation, intravenous hydration, and placement of a nasogastric tube are the mainstay of management. This patient does not have a history of surgeries, and he is constipated but still able to have bowel movements. Finally, a bullet summary. Diabetic gastroparesis presents in poorly managed diabetics with abdominal distension, nausea, and vomiting. That's all for this review about diabetic gastroparesis. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com.